Agriculture Podcast. How are you going, Luke? Good, mate. Good. I'm very excited tonight. Same. Hopefully, so, not too bad technical issues again. It's looking that way <laughs> yeah, at the start. But. You're pretty much blanking out for all of Steve's oh, episode last week, mate. which is a bit unfortunate. Well, it's good to you listen had a rain crowd there. above your butt. Yeah, thunderstorm. Now I've got no excuse. I don't know what's happening. But yeah. Anyway, let's get Time stuck to switch in Let's see. It. Yeah, yeah, it's coming. I'm just got to get to the shops. So. That sounds good. All right, well, we will get stuck in. So tonight, guys, we are joined by Adam Bryce from Wild Nature. Adam is a killer photographer and a herper that's been racking up some awesome photos all over WA for some time now. Adam, thanks for joining us tonight and welcome to the show. Thanks, mate. Uh, cheers, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> I know we've been trying to get you on for a little while now or, or mentioning it at least, but, you yeah, know, it's nice to finally sit down with you and actually have a chat, which is good. Yeah, yeah, there's been a couple of comments thrown here and there on my photos and in chat and whatnot trying to get me on the channel, so it's good to finally be here. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was actually really good to meet you in person the other week down at Illawarra at the, at the show down there. It was, oh, it's always nice putting a face to a name. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? Even just at that show, I met people that I've been Facebook friends for like years just, and <laughs> just, just finally met in person. <laughs> yeah. It's funny how that works. Hey, that's yeah. It's it. I struggle with it sometimes because I don't put people's faces and names together really well. Like I can yeah. remember knowing somebody's face, but I can't remember the name of said person or whatever. I really struggle with that sort of stuff. But. Especially when you chat to them online quite a bit, backwards and forwards, and then you kind of meet them and you're like, oh, like you know, it's 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 almost odd to start off with, and then it's like you start talking. It's like, <laughs> oh, hang on, no, it's all good. <laughs> Yeah, well, especially yeah. depending on like their profile, a lot of people don't put up photos, especially reptile people, don't put up photos yeah. of themselves as a profile picture or anything. It might be a snake or a lizard or something like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. So, Adam, correct me if I'm wrong, but it looks like you actually started out with landscape photography. Or Actually, sorry, let me just backtrack here a little bit. What actually got you started in reptiles in general? Was it Was it starting with landscape photography and just kind of coming across these guys out there or what was the story? Um, no, uh, I think like a lot of us as, you know, children, and especially growing up in rural southwest, um, in Western Australia, um, you think I probably would have been exposed to, you know, things like snakes and lizards on an almost daily basis. But, it, you know, the opposite is probably true. <laughs> Didn't see a heck of a lot you know, growing up, but was always fascinated with the wild, you know, with wild nature and, you know, the natural world and that sort of thing. And, you know, we, as kids where we grew up on David Attenborough and, you know, Steve Irwin and everything like that and wanting to emulate, you know, people like that um, and look up to people like that. But um, actually never thought about photographing anything at all or even really working with them for that matter. So um, the fact that, I'm here where I am now is, um, you know, quite strange because I'm, you know, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have even considered, you know, photographing a highly venomous um, snake. <laughs> so yeah. um, even when I picked up a camera in 2011 for the first time, no, didn't even consider it, just went straight into landscapes like a lot of my um, peers and friends on Facebook at the time um, were into landscapes and I just sort of followed suit. So... Yeah, um, probably a really slow start to, you know, getting into 
the scene um, into the world of reptiles. Um, so I started, um, as I said, in 2011, um, first picked up a camera. Um, I was just just started working away, actually, in Port Hedland um, and just seeing some of the landscapes and some of the critters that were, you know, around camp, like the green tree frogs, uh, uh, the desert tree frogs and stuff like that, and I'd just take little snaps of them and then, you know, take photos of the landscapes and then realise just how rich and diverse the landscapes were within that region. Um, and just through different photography forums, started following um, other people on those forums and on Facebook that um, were solely dedicated landscape photographers, and I just learnt what I could from them. So mm-hmm. purely went the self-teaching route and, you know, decided, well, I'll see if I can uh, <laughs> take some landscape shots. And so I just sort of slowly plugged away at that and just started uh, getting a lot of uh, tips and helps from help from a lot of people um, who I'm still friends with now, um, which is great. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, that still never really thought about photographing reptiles or even wildlife for that matter um, at that point. Uh, <clears throat> I probably couldn't even put it down to a pivotal point in, you know, when I decided to change from, you know, landscapes to wildlife. Um, I'll say wildlife because I pretty much photograph any, you know, wild critter that's running around out there. Yep. Yep. So, you know, not just snakes and lizards, uh, although they are my main focus. Um, But I do remember one time and we were releasing a mulga snake Oh, well, we were about to release a mulga snake um, just outside a camp in Port Hedland. And I thought, you know what? I should try and get a couple of photos of these. And we've caught so many of these snakes um, and so many different species just within that region. Um, but yeah, I've tried landscapes. Just t- try and take a few quick shots of uh, this mulga snake as we release it. So we travelled out to the release point and uh, – we had the snake in a bin, so it was going to be nice and easy just to open up the bin, you know, lay the bin down, and I'll get some photos of the snake as it comes slithering out. So I turned to my um, friend and co-worker, uh, got him to open up the bin. Um, we had just travelled two kilometres down a bumpy road, mind you. Um, <laughs> so he's gone, unclipped the top of the bin, Open the lid, and this mulga snake just shot straight out the top <laughs> and bolted foot of bush. I got one shot as it was retreating, and that was it. Um, <laughs> yeah, the arse end of the mulga snake as it uh, <laughs> took off into the spinifex. Um, and that was pretty much my first foray into you know photographing these snakes and realizing it was going to be quite an effort to try and get a somewhat decent shot of a snake. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think. Slowly after that point, I decided, well, you know, I'll just try taking a few more shots of these snakes that we capture. So, um, and then when we got the copper tail whip snakes um, and that sort of thing, so I was able to practice on them quite regularly because we used to catch them quite a lot. 
mm. around camp. So I was able to get to practice on, you know, a very fast and agile snake, uh, which certainly helped too. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, from, from then on in, I just sort of, yeah, slowly progressed from there. <laughs> Did it did it kind of just become like a little bit of an addiction after a while? Like you know, once you'd kind of taken a half decent photo of one snake, you had to kind of better it, and then you start like discovering more effect. species. Yeah, um, it certainly got addicting. Um, I'm not sure whether uh, you know I was out there to try and be the best snake photographer in the world. Um, I was just purely thinking that I just wanted a half decent shot of the snake, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, as soon as I started delving into the world of, you know, reptile photography, um, I realized exactly how many people were doing it. Um, and I started seeing all these incredible photos and just sort of thinking to myself, yeah, I want to be able to do that. Yeah. You know, so uh, I made a conscious effort. I think, you know, after seeing, you know, many people's work from, you know, Matt Somerville, Nick Volt, Ross McGimmon, all those guys, mm. um, and following them on Facebook and Flickr and, you know, eventually Instagram and whatever else, whatever other social media platforms out there and, um, you know, wanted to try and emulate them and um, produce some of the images that they were able to produce. Um, so yeah, at that point I pretty much made that, um, conscious step to just move away from landscapes and that sort of thing and start focusing on, you know, wildlife and, you know, snakes and reptiles. Yeah. You're also a pretty keen hiker, if I'm not mistaken as well. So surely that's kind of put you in contact with a few species or you're kind of like combining the two loves at the same time. Yeah, um, I, did, I did a lot of hiking uh, growing up and did a lot of hiking with my kids, um, especially throughout the Stirling Ranges. Um, I can't say it put me in line with a lot of reptiles out there, um, certainly wildlife in general, and we did come across the you know odd snake and lizard and that sort of thing, but honestly I think we didn't see – a whole great deal out there, you know, um, Heath monitors, um, you know, crevice skinks and the occasional tiger snake. When we find a tiger snake at the top of Mount Tilburn up, you know, while we we're summiting this mountain one year. And, um, yeah, it's quite odd to see it, you know, a thousand meters up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, something that's, you know, you'll find in lowland swamplands and all that. So, you know, there he is, a thousand meters up the top of a mountain. But yeah, there he was. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what do you reckon your biggest difference switching from landscape photography to reptile photography actually is? Like, is it like the setup or the styles and things that you're u- using? Because uh, your subject can kill you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. Essentially, <laughs> L- landscapes don't move a hell of a lot. Yeah, <laughs> you just have to wait for the light to be perfect. You know. <laughs> yeah, have you um, noticed your, your gears kind of evolved a little bit more as the more you've pursued the reptile photography side of things? Like the more your gears kind of evolved to suit that. Like obviously with landscape, you know, tripod filters and all that. But as you've got into reptiles, there's a you know, different lenses and all that kind of things. Have you found you've kind of evolved more that way with gear? 
Yeah, look, um, I think no matter what genre that you choose to photograph, um, you're always going to have a plethora of gear to choose from. Um, landscapes as well, because you're going to shoot with everything from a wide angle to, you know, a standard um, like 50-50 through to 85 mil. I've seen people photograph landscapes with to telephoto lenses. So right. you're doing, you can use exactly the same lenses for, you know, reptile and wildlife photography. So um, it's just utilizing in different ways. Yep. And instead of relying solely, you know, on natural light, um, as you would in landscapes, um, you know, we, we utilize a lot of artificial light for um, fill flash and that sort of thing when we're photographing, you know, reptiles. Um, other wildlife is a little different where we use natural um, light if you can't get close to certain lizards or, yep. you know, whether you're photographing mammals. So um, you'll be using natural light and telephoto lenses and, you know, your own stealth. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the gear is just sort of adapted to suit whatever genre you choose to photograph. So, um, yeah, for us it's you know, everything from wide-angle macro lenses to, you know, standard macro lenses and then softboxes and flash modifiers and all the sorts of fun toys we get to play with. So, <laughs> yeah, You've got a pretty uh, – like I was just going through your Facebook page not too long ago – and you got a pretty pretty awesome picture with you with one of those big umbrella flashes. It's a, a pretty sizey flash. A bit of a love affair with those soft foxes from some, some of the memes I've seen you post. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, my favourite brand being the uh, SMBB, uh, one of the guys out there, um, yeah, they just produce a really great soft box. Um, and it just and it creates brilliant light. I mean, I... I can't really fault them. I love using them. I've used them for a lot of years um, now. So, unfortunately, they stopped the S40, uh, which was just a good size, you know, 40 centimeters, a nice manageable softbox. But now I've got a ridiculous, you know, 60 centimeter monstrosity. Um, yeah. But, you know, the, the light is still great. Um, it may be a little bit cumbersome once it's unfurled and, you know, ready for action, but um, yeah, it still produces, yeah, magnificent light. Yeah, I've just got one of those handheld soft boxes, but I'm yet to try it out, so I'm keen to give it a crack. <laughs> yeah, Jason, oh, they're great. Jason will be down his local ponds soon enough, no doubt. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just love how versatile it is. You know, you can yeah. basically just angle light from any direction. And um, basically put it where you want it. Yeah, exactly. So um, and you can get all sorts of different effects just shooting the same subject from, you mm. know, the same camera angle but just changing lighting and just making a completely different image i think that's yeah. just fantastic i think that's one of the yeah. benefits of artificial lighting yeah <clears throat> well yeah they have to take a look at what janico was doing with that what was it cayman or something like that where he's backlighting yeah. the cayman and yeah through that, that yeah, was an awesome he's, shot. Um, yeah he's been uh, experimenting with lighting for a long time and yeah he's He's very proficient and I love his work. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what, what camera do you actually use? Like what's your kind of go-to setup? Uh, my go-to setup is my Venom encrusted Canon 17 Mark II. <laughs> I've had that for several years now. Um, it's an old camera, but you know what? I love it. It's been through the mud and shit with me for, you know, a number of years now and it, and it still keeps going. 
you know, no, just sort yeah. of stops being, being bitten by nearly everything and, yeah, it just, it just keeps going. <laughs> Battle scars. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and the main lens I typically use would be the Lauer 15mm F4 wide-angle macro lens, um, which, you know, quite a lot of people um, within the reptile um, photography um, genre shoot with. Um, so I'll do that for a lot of uh, full-body shots and, you know, environment shots. Yeah. Um, but I also use a standard 60 mil macro, so I pretty much only swap between those two lenses, you know, unless I'm targeting things like really quick dragons where you can only shoot, you know, using telephoto or something yeah. like that. But, yeah, it's pretty much a lower and 60 mil uh, plus my softbox. Um, but I also use uh, a Sickness Tech uh, flash modifier Yeah, um, made by a good friend of mine, so... Yeah, and they do, and that does a brilliant, brilliant job. So, you know, if you standard macro. Yeah, I like it. I like that diffuser. I've got one of those as well. Yeah, I've had every iteration of it as it's evolved over the years. Um, yeah, yeah, he's done well, and yeah, he's done he a lot has. of trial and, and error, and um, and it's all the work that I haven't had to do to make my own. So it's great. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can just buy it off someone else. <laughs> They're pretty much a custom thing for your setup as well. Like you, you kind of tell him what you're you're using essentially, and he makes it to, for it, doesn't he? Yeah, exactly. So you tell him what flash camera and lens you're using, and he'll measure it up and uh, basically customize the modifier to suit your particular um, gear. So yeah, yeah, exactly. One thing that I noticed that you're really into as well is like uh, not only reptiles and snakes, obviously, but you do photograph a lot of arachnids. So that, yep. that probably comes in handy for that, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, the Cygnus Tech, yeah, certainly does come in real handy. But, I mean, it gives you – I mean, it gives you a free hand as well, um, and that certainly helps with um, reptiles as well when you've got a free hand spare mm. as opposed to photographing, you know, highly venomous snakes with a softbox. Um, having that diffuser, you know, gives you the, gives you that um, you know extra mobility, I guess, and um, you know, a chance to sort of get away or avoid or you know, move something out of the way with a free hand, as opposed to you won't be able to do that with a softbox. Although the softbox, you know, has its own uses. It's a good shield. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's an impromptu hide <laughs> box if the snake decides to slither off you put the soft box down on top of it and just curl up underneath it <laughs> that's a bad idea I never thought of that <laughs> yeah. little trick of the trade there you yeah. don't even bring your plant saucer yeah <laughs> so on the topic of venomous snakes where did you actually kind of master the art of, of doing that was that just at, in Port Headland where you were kind of catching and releasing a lot of these animals or yeah, so it's um, that gave me a lot of different subject matter to practice on, definitely. Um, but slowly over the years, um, I've gleaned information and skills off, you know, various people from, you know, Ross McGibbon, Brian Bush, um, uh, you know, um, and a few other people within the industry um, that yeah. – you know, just helped. Um, uh, well, basically, you, you, you know, I'd look at from 
people around the world as well, you know, photographing everything from boas and vipers to, you know, anaconda and that sort of thing and just wanting to substitute that snake for one of our own and, you know, and just, yeah, no, that pose is nice and, you know, that way of, that way of uh, photographing the environment is great, you know, utilising different lighting methods and uh, that sort of thing. So it's just being gleaning information from everywhere and yeah. uh, wanting to emulate what, and reproduce, well, not necessarily reproduce, but find a way of producing my own images in that kind of light as well. So, um, yeah, so it's it's just a multitude of people are just learning off them um, and more importantly learning the subject matter as well because yeah. um, to photograph animals like that, you need to really know them um, yeah. to put yourself within the firing line. Um yeah, because if you don't know the animal, you're just going to get tagged, um, yep. especially when you're dealing with highly venomous snakes. So obviously especially the more you know about them. 15 mil too, nice and close as well. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's where a lot of people that photograph these animals with the wide-angle macro lens um, feel more comfortable is, you know, up close and personal with these animals. So obviously we have to be able to understand, read and know what these animals um, are capable of and predict yeah. what they're going to be able to do when we're photographing them. Um, but that also comes down to the individual animal as well, obviously. So I'm sure you've met some snakes that are more flighty or more defensive or whatever than others uh, and yeah. some that are just placid as, you know, pythons. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, so it just comes down to adapting um, animal to animal Um as we find them out there um, and, and knowing how far you can sort of push yourself and um, and how much they will tolerate, you know, our sort of presence <laughs> and being yeah. in that close proximity. Definitely. I, I suppose, as you, as you say, everything's got its own threshold and that can come down to an individuality, you know, as, as you said. So, yeah. yeah. I've, I've met some snakes or some mulga snakes that I can literally sit my lower that far away, you know, like an inch from its snout, mm. and it doesn't care, you know. Yeah. Whereas other ones, you can't get, you know, a meter from it without it launching at you. So, yeah, um, yeah, it's just down to the individual snake and being able to, you know, properly read that snake's body language and tolerance levels towards us being so close. <laughs> yeah, um, oh, that's crazy. I mean, you've definitely got a. Way more gusto in that department than I ever would. Oh, yeah, I'm, same here. I think, I think the, the, the craziest thing I ever did, <laughs> if you could call it that, was a GoPro on a very short stick in front of a mulga snake. And uh, <laughs> let's just say it was somewhat secured. So, um, yeah, <laughs> that was about as brave as I got. So we, with having done all this, you must have had some close calls, right? Like there must have been a few times where snakes have kind of bounced off your diffuser or something like that and you've kind of second-guessed what you're doing? Um, I don't know whether – yeah, look, we've had close calls and I think um, anyone that says that they don't uh, should probably have another look at, you know, what they photographed over the years and say, well, yeah, um, we've had a few close calls. Um, but I don't think there's any point where I've actually second-guessed what I've done I would probably after the fact think back and just look how could I have done things differently Um, you know sometimes it's just being too enthusiastic um, and trying to jump in there too 
too quickly, um, you know, and it's, it's not being, you know, overconfident or blasé about the whole situation. It's just, you, you know, you can come across some extraordinary animals and you just want to get stuck into it yeah. and, and get a little bit carried away. But uh, there's – but it's it sort of gets to the point where you have to trust your own skill um, and knowledge about these animals and, you know, your own observations over the years – um, both photographing and catching and releasing these animals. Um, and you have to be able to rely on that as well as rely on the people around you that sort of help you photograph the animals as well. So, you know, so all these things go hand in hand. Um, I do remember one particular close call where a good friend of mine, um, Bryn Arkell, and I were setting up to release a Western Brown. Um, and I look back now and think, yeah, purely my own fault, you know, with how close this snake got to actually tagging me. Um, but as we were setting up and I was getting it out of the catch bag, um, I just saw his tail and just, you know, reached in to grab it, um, as you do. <laughs> but uh, just for some reason, I just didn't even think of, well, where's the head? <laughs> yeah, you know so I grabbed the tail and this head just comes shooting out the bag um, instinctively instinctively, I've dropped my hand and sort of let go at the same time as, as this western brown literally shot straight over the top like the bottom of his jaw pretty much tapped the top of my hand as he went over um, and that would probably be the closest and probably the only time that that sort of happened really. Mm. <laughs> um, so, I mean, we do a lot of things to help, uh, you know, mitigate the risk out there and, um, you know, everything from knowledge of the animal to having, you know, competent people around you. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, um, it's going to be, you know, human error every time if, you know, one of us gets bitten. Um, but that's part of the fun, I guess. Um, we can only, I mean, as Brian Bush would say, it's inevitable that you're going to get bitten the more you play with these animals or, you know, the more you photograph these animals. And you just can't, you know, constantly expose yourself um, in such a way where you think it's just not ever going to happen um, mm. because, you know, one day it's just going to happen. Yeah, that's um, right. One day your, your guard's going to be down or, you know, just simple mistake, you're going to sneeze or, swat a fly and the snake's going to take a crack at you. and um, Yeah, and, and it, inevitably that point will probably come one day where I'll get tagged. hope it doesn't. And <laughs> I really don't want to be bitten. But um, but you just you just never know. But we obviously do all we can to, That's right. you know, to mitigate the risk. Yeah. So if you had to kind of give somebody that's getting – into reptile photography, in particular with venomous snakes, some tips about getting into venomous snake photography on on staying safe. Yeah. Yep. What would you, what were some of your biggest suggestions be? Um, I would say do a snake awareness or even a snake catching course mm-hmm. uh, first and foremost, because these are just invaluable skills that you're going to learn. Because if you're never exposed um, to these sort of animals, you've only got 
you know, what you see on social media, what you've heard from neighbours, what you read in books or see on TV. Um, and a lot, a lot of it's hyped up. When you're actually confronted with these animals, you just realise exactly how placate they are, I guess you could say, um, and how timid they are and how shy they are and mm. how they just don't want anything to do with us. So, you know, this, you know, doing snake awareness courses and snake catching courses is just only going to help um, kickstart your knowledge um, into these animals and the more you start studying these animals um, and the more you learn about them, obviously the better equipped you're going to be, um, at least in your mind, that you know that you know that it needs animals. Um, I, like I said, I didn't start photographing them until several years after snake catching. I first started snake catching, so um, I already had, you know, learnt quite a lot. Um, you know, mainly through Brian Bush, um, and he'd always feed me new information, new, um, you know, scientific papers that come out, and I would learn pretty much as much as I could about these animals um, because I had just – I was just addicted to wanting to know more about these animals because I wanted to be able to, um, you know, work with them more confidently and safely. Um, and ultimately – the more knowledge that you can garner, you know, the better, the better you're going to be for it once you're out there. Um, you know, once you know the animal, their environment, um, you know, their different defensive styles and, um, and that sort of thing. It's, uh, this is knowledge that's, you know, all worthwhile and all that you keep in the back of your mind every time you come across one. Um, and being able to identify them out in the field is a big thing too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think, yeah, first and foremost, yeah, would be state awareness, state catching courses, um, and then basically learning what's in your area first. Yeah. Um, so, you know, learning what snakes um, and other reptiles uh, within your certain region, you know, within a 50, 100-kilometre radius or whatever. Um and just start observing them. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, start, um, you know, looking at them in the wild, um, seeing how close you get to them, how they react. Um, obviously being, you know, respectable distance. You know, when, when you see these animals just doing their own thing in nature, it's quite beautiful, mm. you know, just seeing a snake slither about um, hunting for food or, yeah. you know, or whether they might be, you know, performing ritualistic combat between two male snakes or, you know, whatever, just um, observing them out in the wild um, and knowing, um, you know, how you can behave around them as well yeah. uh, and what's going to set them off. I mean, nine times out of ten you get close to a snake, it's just going to take off into the bush every time. <laughs> That's right. Well, I guess one thing to do is if you if you learn, if you're starting to learn, you don't have, always have to go after venomous snakes too. There's a million other different species that you can learn on first too. If you don't yeah, exactly. Well, so. Yeah, I mean, we. I, the, the good thing about working in the Pilbara is that we just pretty much, there's just a whole wide range of species that, you know, that we're able to catch and relocate, you know, um, yep. everything from monitor lizards to, you know, venomous snakes and pythons and, 
even small skeets and frogs, you know, from people's toilets and air cons and that sort of thing. So uh, we had just a multitude of different subject matter to choose from yeah. um, to practice. So that was, um, yeah, that was really handy. <laughs> What what actually got you into snake catching? Like, was there obviously you were just kind of starting to get into them a little bit, and you wanted to kind of further your, yourself, as you've kind of mentioned now, or was there like a particular um, job role that you had that was involved? With it? Yeah, so basically doing um, for one of my duties in the security and emergency response, uh, part of those duties was the catch and relocation of you know highly venomous reptiles, mm. um, which yeah it was just part of the job, and that's all I started thinking of it as um it was a fun part of the job too but uh uh yeah yeah seriously didn't think of anything else other than just doing it as part of you know just my duties yeah that's pretty awesome pretty good gig to, to to kind of get stuck into it so yeah and especially in the pilbara where you just got yeah you know, all the snakes you can choose from really just uh <laughs> what were some of the species that were most common for you out there uh, so it was specifically around the camps, um, or where I were, was, um, pretty much mulga snake and western brown were the two common larger leopards. Yep. Um, and then copper tails as well, copper tail whip snake. Um, so they were the th- probably the three main snakes we would get around camp more often than not. And then basically the occasional, uh, black headed python, uh, Stimpsons or children's python as they're known by these days. Um, and, you know, uh, desert banded snakes, um, rigged brown snakes. Uh, I even had a little spotted snake one time. Uh, so, yeah, we had a few different things, but yeah, the main ones were basically a mulga snake, copper tail, and western brown. I have to ask because obviously Jason and I haven't been to WA to look for these ourselves, but around <laughs> that kind of landscape where you were, what sort of gecko species were you kind of finding commonly around through there? Uh, Gahara species are pretty common, but they're common pretty much everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, a pain in the ass to ID anywhere. But, yeah, um, yeah uh Stroffs, you know, you get your northern spiny tails there. We get them quite a lot around camp, um, as well as the usual Asian house geckos. Um, but yeah, uh, Acasium stenodactylus, get them, um, you know, the sand plain out there as well, as well as Nephorus, you know, Labus pilbarensis, um, your pilbara smooth knobtail gecko. Um, literally found one of them just outside camp, which is really cool. That's pretty awesome. That's right. Uh, yeah, I wasn't even looking for it. I was actually chasing spiders at that time. <laughs> there's, there's a large wolf spider I was after. Uh, and just, yeah, found this little knobtail gecko. Oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're impressive when you do see them out in the wild, though, because they've got some legs to them. They like to run. Yeah, I'm yet to see one. Too. Yeah, yeah, they've got uh, what I like to call swagger. Yeah, <laughs> got a bit of attitude too. Some of them. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I've been bit by a few of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you come across Strafirus Strafirus at all? 
Uh, yes, down in the Midwest, yeah. Yep, nice. Yep. Yeah, so they're, they're a gorgeous gecko. They're not probably as ornately marked as a lot, but um, those yep. yellow interspaces on the tail – yeah. Quite uh, magnificent. I love that. And I've photographed that a few times. Yeah, I'd love uh, to see that. <laughs> but they're a great little stroff. They really are. And I've found many throughout the Midwest. So pretty much the, the common gecko that you will see out there. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like I might have to make a trip over there, Luke. <laughs> yeah. So Paige, fine. Yalgoo, yeah, you'll find plenty there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm very keen to do WA. I, I really want to do a few trips there. Yeah. Same. Uh, we are spoiled for choice. Well, we were spoiled for choice over there, but uh, it is hard work. Uh, oh, and yeah. a lot of you have to cover a lot of Ks. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, um, yeah. kind of similar to the NT in that sort of sense, where you know, if you really want to see a big diversity, you know, especially with the arid country, you do need to drive a bit. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's quite a lot of species you get around Perth, but Perth has just got, in my opinion, anyway, quite boring habitat. <laughs> yeah. I like getting out in the arid regions and I'm quite fond of arid Australia. Always have been and always will be, I think. So I just I just love it. <clears throat> were you exposed to the arid centre from an early age or was that something that when you just you discovered it, you were kind of like, oh, this is just like a bit of a magnet for you? I think the appreciation developed probably through landscape photography. Um, and when a mate of mine and I decided to go down through Karajini and photograph some of the landscapes out there. Uh, and my appreciation for these, for the diverse landscapes that you go through just to get to Karajini where yeah. you start from flat, you know, floodplains and spin effects and then you just get through to these deep gorges and canyons and, you know, water um, waterfalls and stuff like that just in the middle of the desert. Uh, it's just quite amazing. Um, and photographing, you know, these amazing landscapes and just falling in love with um, the richness of it and the rich colour, the, the um, you know, the harshness, you know, of the environment around there from the jagged rock to, you know, the extreme temperatures that you get. Um, and then looking more closely within that habitat and environment and realising that there's a plethora of life you know, moving amongst the rocks and yep. spin effects and sand and, and thinking just, it's just magic. It, it really I mean, is. You, you can see why you fell in love with landscape photography over there as well. Like you see some of the images that people take over there and it's absolutely breathtaking. And like you said, you get drawn to the landscape and then you find like a plethora of life in those little micro habitats in those landscapes. So it's kind of, you know, another avenue to, to go down with photography. Yeah, Exactly. Um, where every, you know, bundle of spin effects and, you know, eucalypt is just its own little ecosystem, you know, mm. where you see just all these different invertebrates and mammals and reptiles and all that just relying on, um, you know, the habitat that's out there and, and utilising it in such a way that they thrive. And mm. it, it's amazing to see in such a harsh environment. <laughs> yeah, there's so many different types of animals out there. Yeah, it's crazy when you when you are in that sort of habitat and you're looking around during the day or whatever and you can't see any tracks across the sand dunes or anything and then you go there the next morning or something and there's just like all these little hundreds and thousands of footprints <laughs> everywhere and you're going, man, what did I miss? You know, it was like yeah, a party exactly. out here the night before or something. Yeah. 
For our um, overseas listeners that may not have actually come in contact with Spinifex, can you describe to them what it's like to stick your hands into a bit of uh, tussock grass? <laughs> well, I think we've all chased, um, you know, lizards and geckos and snakes through um, Spinifex and it's pretty much like trying to grab an echidna, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's yeah, very spiky and, yeah. I've been pierced that many times, knelt on it, sat on it, rolled on it, put my hand in it. Yeah, it's not fun. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, we do what we do. take refuge there. Yeah, and we, and we do what we do to try and, you know, get closer to these animals. And I've literally been photographing animals like uh, desert death adders or, you know, pilgrim death adders and just you would move to try and get the shot and your hand would get pierced by spin effects, but you just don't care. You had to get shot and yeah. pull your hand off the spinning and, you know, patch up your wounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it is, yeah, as you say, like little micro habitats like that, and you can see why the animals use them. What always amazes me, though, is especially a lot of those little geckos that, you know, are spin effects specialists, like, you know, um, Elder Eye, uh, yeah, that's what I was trying to think of. They're such smooth, little, tiny, delicate geckos. You'd think if they were to fall in that, they'd be goners, you know, but they seem to be able to yeah. just jump down into it like it was nothing. Yeah, they're just amazing. You know, they'll just drop and disappear into this stuff. You think, how? How are you not a gecko kebab right now? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So correct me if I'm wrong again, but you have done a little bit of herping up through the Kimberley region, through through to Darwin and Top End? Yeah, so uh, about two years ago now, I think, my mate Dylan and I, we decided to, uh, well, our original plan was to go after the Western Desert Top End, but COVID sort of ruined that and they shut down all the remote Aboriginal communities, so we weren't allowed out there. So our plan B was then just to go up through to Kimberley and into the Top End and... Um, see how we went from there so yeah um, a couple of years ago we decided to do that um, and I flew up to Broome and we sort of started from there <laughs> wow so what was like the the change in habitat compared to like what you're used to you know around Port Hedland and that what can you kind of describe how it was different up there there were more trees <laughs> <laughs> that's a good start <laughs> and, and and there was actual elevation, you know. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so just, um, yeah, just basically because it's a whole wetter environment up there. So you've got all these river systems and trees, you know, your boab, your large boab trees, um, yeah. you know, amongst other things. Um, and just everything's so much greener um, and wetter compared to, you know, inland Pilbara um, or even coastal Pilbara where I was in Port Hedland. So we pretty much have an ongoing joke there that there's a dome over Port Hedland where it just doesn't rain. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, once we got into the Kimberley, it was just everything was just so lush um, and wet and new for me. So it was, yeah, it was a really great um experience and just finding new animals you know kicking off the trip where the frill neck lizard was great awesome. <laughs> you know just in broom so yeah yeah it would be a massive change because obviously having those kind of a bit more uh tropical species and stuff like that it would really kind of freshen it up for you i'd imagine 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think the first night, um, was it the second night? No, the first night, I think we stopped off at the um, Limestone Ranges um, and you know, found the Limestone Range, um, Marble Gecko and, mm. you know, uh, Kimberly Morph of the Brown Tree Snake and, you know, Magnificent Tree Frog. And these are just great to start, you know, ticking off. Um, and seeing in the wild and photographing, so yeah, it was good. Have you been lucky enough to go up towards Mitchell Plateau on the hunt for roughies? No, it was something that we wanted to do come the dry season, but sort of you know the plans changed. You know, because obviously you can't get up there in the wet because everything's yep. just closed off. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's just unfortunately it was something I never got to do. I definitely want to go back and search for them. So it's both that and Owen Pelly. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that oh, Owen Pelly's looks pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I've got so many friends that have found it, even with some that weren't even looking for it, and they find it. It's like... Seems a lot lot more people are finding them now compared to Ruffies. Yeah. Yeah, actually. I've, just... um, yeah, haven't seen too many pictures of, you know, Ruffies recently, so... yeah. I think that comes down to accessibility. Exactly. Yeah, I was just about to say that. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah I, like whilst whilst the OPs are still a very rare snake, I think it's um, a lot. Of, yeah, a lot easier to get to to have the shot. Yeah. So, yeah. H- have you gone for OPs before, Adam? Have you tried to find them? I think we might have lost him here. Can you hear us, Adam? Yeah, we sort of tried when we went across the top end. Um, but, yeah, yeah it was uh, – everything was sort of flooding around us, so probably wasn't really ideal conditions to um, to hurt. So, um, yeah, it was uh, extremely wet when we were there and roads were getting closed off everywhere, so yeah. access was greatly reduced. Um you know, especially around where, you know, Owen Pelly could be found um, and all through Kakadu pretty much as we travelled around, just places were just closed off because it was all flooded and too dangerous. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, just a bad time of year for us um, where it was just too wet and hot as hell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, they're... Um there's some crazy roads up there as well, and yeah, we definitely came across our fair share of roadblocks. That's for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go a little bit further further south. Um, Imbricata. Let's let's talk a little bit about Imbricata because they <laughs> seem to be like the bane of anybody that's into Morelia's yeah. existence to find. <laughs> yeah. I know it's it's taken Matt a fair few years to be able to tick Imbricata off the list. So. How have you yeah. found them as a species to find? They're a really funny snake to try. I mean, you literally can't target it. It's it's yeah. almost a, a bonus species um, that you may come across once in a blue moon. Um, the funny thing is I've never actually gone out specifically herping for, you know, Imbricata. I've just pretty much stumbled across them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and... You know, it's majority of been through road cruising, um, and then they just suddenly pop up out of nowhere, um, and in weird places. Um, 
And and one, I was actually talking to my partner on the phone, and I thought, you know, it'd be pretty cool if I found a python right about now. And literally five minutes later, I stumbled across an Imbricata crossing the track. <laughs> um, midday, um, you know, and I think it was about 20, mid-20s. Yeah. During the day, and um, yeah, there it was. Uh, but yeah, it's it's one of those species that you just can't target. Um, you could be in the right habitat, you know, reasonable conditions, and just find everything but. But, uh, but yeah, if we were fortunate enough um, to live in an area or live near an area where we seem to come across them, probably more often than not. You know, south of Mandra, there's a pretty decent population there. Um, but again, I've had other mates go down there and just luck out every time, just not find a thing. Just, yeah. Um, you know, they'll find everything that we find your chance banded snakes and, um, uh, you know, and, and bardics and stuff like that, but just never come across in Ricarda. <laughs> so, you know, you couldn't even give anyone tips on you know, where to find them and how to find them because, yeah, they're just one of these bonus species that will pop up. Once in a blue just moon. stumble across it. Yeah. <laughs> when you say, like, they sometimes just pop up in weird places, like, what, what do you mean by that? Like, are you just saying, like, habitat that just doesn't seem like it would suit a carpet python? Uh, no, habitat, um, well, I guess sometimes. Um, there's... There's a particular place um, down where we normally hurt, but it's um, basically just houses, and you'll come across an Imbricata crossing the street, mm. you know, <laughs> or something like that, in between, you know, the, you know, the neighbourhood um, uh, shanty village out there, um, you know, or yes, um, yes, yeah, stuff like that, and and some that have been in just um, relatively clear areas, you know, where there's no trees and yeah. anything like that and scrubs only like up to your knee um, and you think, well, where do you go? Where do you hide? Mm. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> just a bit of luck of the draw. Yeah, but it's always interesting finding it in suburbia. I mean, it's within their natural habitat and recently, you know, probably cleared within the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh but yeah, they're just to find them cruising through the houses and stuff. It's uh, always interesting. <laughs> I suppose if they're like most carpet pythons on the east coast, though, they're probably adapt. They're going to adapt pretty quickly to living in homes, you know, soon enough. Yeah, um, we probably find less. Uh, this probably happens less and less really over there. I don't think. Um, I mean, with coastal carpet pythons and all that, you know, you just seem to hear about them everywhere, you know, across the east coast, um, and. The exact opposite is probably what Perth's like. Like you will very, I mean, there's there's some places in there where they will see them, but it's not like you hear about them all the time and you find them in every second backyard and that sort of thing. It's, it's just nothing like that. Their populations yeah. are so, you know, sporadic that, <laughs> yeah, they just sort of, you know, have little pockets here and there that, you know, they may occur in and people may see them. But, um, yeah, they just... Uh, <laughs> But they are a reasonably hard python to target. Yeah. Well, speaking about hard things to target, what do you go? Oh, so, what sort of um, success have you had ticking any of the monitor species off? 
Um, probably pretty poor. Um, <laughs> and in all truthfulness, I probably don't even target them. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> um, I mean, I do love monitors. Monitors are great. I've got good friends that, you know, I've studied them um, over the years. and um, But I've just never... I don't know, I've just never been inclined to photograph or even target, you know, many monitor species. Um, yeah. You know, or lizards in general. I, I, I love snakes. I love photographing yeah. snakes and I'll photograph, you know, snakes every day if I could. Um, but I just, for some reason, I just don't seem to photograph a hell of a lot of other species. And I'm trying to change that, especially being, you know, here on the East Coast now and trying to photograph a few things other than snakes. Um because quite honestly, not as, they don't seem to be as prevalent over here as they were in the Pilbara. So, <laughs> got to photograph yeah. something. <laughs> yeah. What was the drive like over from the from west over here? Did you do a bit of herping on the way? Or did you kind of just? I I started out in, with good intentions to you know road crews and that sort of thing along the way, and just there was nothing. Yeah. Um, you know, going right across WA just through South Australia, just seeing kilometre after kilometre of nothing, you so, know, no no life at all. You know, they're just so, such well-travelled roads. Yeah. Um, that's probably just had a slow, devastating effect on the population densities, you know, mm. you know, near the highways there because I didn't see a hell of a lot. Even roadkill, you know, was yeah. very minimal. I only found a you know a handful of different species along the way that have been clobbered. Um, the occasional live one that you might come across, but um, there was it was quite depressing actually that there was yeah. just just didn't really see a hell of a lot of wildlife coming over. Yeah. Um, so then I just sort of decided just yeah just just keep driving yeah, <laughs> and not really stopping enough. at that point. Yeah. <laughs> How you find herping yeah, the East East Coast I, compared to the West? Yeah, different. Um, yeah. yeah, you Cold guys up. do things. <laughs> oh, bloody cold. <laughs> um, I met up with some mates, Jason, Luke, and Shane Walsh re- recently um, up in the Royal, and God damn, it was cold that morning. Um, <laughs> you know, but we found a texty and some yellow-faced witch snakes and stuff, but... Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, our snakes in the Pilbara wouldn't get out of bed for anything less than 25 degrees at night, yeah. you know. So, so to come over here and it's 25 during the day and, and I'm feeling cold, I'm thinking, what are we going to find? Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I think just, you know, living and working in the Pilbara for so long and, you know, these animals require really – they require a lot of heat, you know, yeah. to, to get them motivated, to get up and moving and um, pretty much like myself. Um, <laughs> but to, to come over here and, you know, everything's colder, wetter, um, greener and lush, but, yeah, yeah, mossier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, and but it's, it is yeah completely different style of, you know, herping to what we would – do over there i mean we still use the same techniques like we're still road crews and that sort of thing um but uh over there you can pretty much road crews 
anything you like. You wouldn't have to, you know, bush bash it through um, different sort of habitat to try and find your animal because you pretty much find them all out on the road, you know, and that, yeah. that, that includes all your gecko species, and, you know, snakes and monitors. They're all, you know, within the road, um, uh, regions of the road around there. So, <laughs> yeah, you don't really have to go looking for those pockets of forest and stuff like that to be able to go looking for animals so much when the, yeah, the habitat's right, right there. Yeah. Or getting lost in the Royal National Park because, you know, your guide's taken a wrong turn and <laughs> you end up having to push through some uh, thick uh, bush and ferns and stuff. So <laughs> That wasn't Shane, was it? No, that was Jason. <laughs> <laughs> and what's funny is he lives there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can't say that I've been herping with Jason. I, I do know of him, but I've been herping with um, herping with Shane quite a few times, and he's, he's a good bloke. I really like Shane. Yeah, yeah he is. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, obviously, you've come at probably like the one of the cooler times for our, our herping on the east coast. So it's you know kind of coming into the off season for it. So as most herpers would say, it's it's flipping season. So yeah, yeah pretty different. much. <laughs> to find anything, you've got to wake them up yourself. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, do you have any herp trips that are actually planned for for up and down the East Coast? Um, nothing that's set in concrete at the moment. Um, still sort of getting myself established here and, um, yeah, you know, just working out the local scene and, um, you know, just trying to find what I can locally at the moment. But, um, there are tentative plans, obviously, just to probably go a little bit west, you know, into around Cobar and, um, you know, as well as into the more northern beaches and northern regions, Hawkesbury and you know, up to Maitland and stuff like that. And, um, I think the first big trip might be Brigalow. Um, it's a region I've always you know, wanted to sink my teeth into. Because uh, there's some amazing animals out there, so <laughs> I think okay. um, that will probably be the first big one. Just do a brigalow belt run. I like how you come out here this way, and then you're kind of already going towards those arid areas <laughs> again. It's kind of yeah. yeah. You can see that it's in your blood. That's for sure. Staying away from the leeches and going to the flies. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Had enough of the leeches already. <laughs> No, flies are good. Fly, I, I'd much rather the flies than the leeches. The leeches are terrible yeah. at the moment. Too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's been very wet, that's for yeah. sure. So um, you, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here and saying that you've never actually been a reptile keeper as such, but you, your partner has recently come home with a python, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I mean, um, actually it was I think a few days after I arrived, um, I got her a Murray, Murray Darling. Um, she really has several other pythons, but um, yeah, bought the new, new one, little Murray darling. Was one she's always wanted. So uh, yeah, happened to see one and pick one up for her. Oh, that's awesome. How how do you find like the change from obviously seeing these animals in the wild to then seeing them in captivity? Um, yeah, look, I I I don't mind um, the whole captive scene. I was never really. Um, intrigued enough to want to keep myself, yeah, and um, and be by far, I guess you know, could have accommodated it, but just 
yeah, just live with people that yeah, didn't like snakes or, you know, would want them around the house. So um, never really thought about keeping, um, quite honestly. And in my own personal opinion, I prefer seeing them out in the wild. I prefer finding them out there, photographing them out there because I think in nature they just look brilliant and you just yeah. – it's so hard to replicate. You know, when you just come across, you know, a desert death adder for the first time and there's those vibrant oranges and yellows um, highlighting the road, it's just you, – you can't beat that. Yeah. Um, you know, no matter how many you keep – finding him out there in the wild, I just get that rush every time. Yeah. So, uh, and I love that. And I love the fact that you can see them out in the wild just looking as brilliant as they do. Um, yeah, so that's where I prefer to find them and prefer to photograph them and, and see them slither off into the distance. There's just nothing more rewarding in my opinion. Yeah. yeah, I think no, it's I, to do with the thrill of the hunt as well, trying to find oh, yeah. animals. Well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. Well, when you got it in captivity, you know where it is. So That's if you right. ever want yeah. it, you just go straight to it. You're not going to get an adrenaline rush every time you walk into your yep. reptile room. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> open drawer, open the enclosure, and it's there. Yeah. Oh, mate. Well, this has been an absolute ball having you on to just chat, chat, herpin, chat reptile finding and all the rest of it um before before we sign off here did you want to throw out anywhere where people can actually find some of your photos to have a look at um so basically pretty much only utilize two platforms being facebook and instagram so it's adam bryce wild nature on both um uh, that's it pretty much except for those that follow my own personal page i post a whole bunch of stuff there as well but um yeah but adam bryce wild nature Facebook and Instagram is my main two. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah, for anybody out there, make sure you do go check out Adam's yeah. photos because he's Great got some fun. really incredible stuff and yeah, everything too, not just reptiles. So there's a good good host of other sorts of stuff, and I actually really like your spider photography as well. Yeah, I was looking at before. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there'll be more of that happening on the east coast because there's a few friends around the place that uh, actually keep funnel webs and you know now spiders and trapdoors and that sort of thing, but. Yeah, we're going for a probably good look for them out in the wild as well because, yeah, quite honestly, that's where I prefer to see anything um, out in the wild and just seeing, you know, the web layouts of, you know, some of our myglomorph species of spiders are just quite impressive and to photograph them out there will be pretty good. So I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) I have to ask just quickly before we do sign off here, are you going to become an orchid photographer as well? <laughs> you know, there's um, it's something they tried, and something I've actually have delved in in Western Australia. Because if there's any place that you're going to be to photograph orchids, would be Western Australia. Um, got the best reptiles and orchids. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I have actually photographed my fair share of uh, Western Australian species of orchids. Um, so would I ever? I don't get excited about finding new species of orchids. <laughs> They're just a byproduct of herping or looking for other yeah. things. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I won't specifically travel to places looking for orchids, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's fair enough. We'll each to their end of the end of the day, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Alrighty, guys, we would like to say a massive thank you to Eric and Owen and the rest of the NPR crew for having us. If you'd like to contact them, it's best to find them at moreliapythonradio.com and email them at info at moreliapythonradio.com. Make sure to follow the NPR network on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. As far as contacting us and our social media platforms, you can email us at australianherpticulture at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. Make sure to check out our Teespring store for podcast merch. The link is on the Facebook page. To see more of what Jason is doing, make sure to follow him on Facebook and Instagram at The Gecko Effect. And for myself, you can find me on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and Teespring under Beach of Scaly Beasts. Grab Debbie back next week for another episode of the Australian Heptoculture Podcast. Good night, guys.